Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. My goodness, now which glasses should I wear? These ones or these ones? (laughs) Oh, how fun. These are funny, right? (laughs) I love it. I love all the rainbows. And that, listeners, is how my conversation with the light that is Pat Cleveland began. You might have realized in part one of this two-part conversation that Pat's joy is absolutely infectious. Her life lived in fashion is an inspiration, and so is she. We are so excited to continue our conversation with her about her life and career in 1970s fashion. And believe it or not, there is still so much more to say. Yes because we could not let her go without talking about her friend Halston or her participation in the legendary Battle of Versailles and, you know, that other little small thing called Studio 54. (laughs) We have so many questions for Pat, not enough time to hear all of her amazing stories. So let's just go ahead and jump right back in on Cass and Pat's conversation. So there's so many pictures of you from the 1970s, so many wonderful images. It's hard to pick a favorite. It's impossible, actually. But some of the most memorable that I found are of you with or wearing Halston. Can you tell us about how you two met and what it was like working so intimately with him throughout the decade? Because you two were really good friends as well. Well, Halston had already been designing hats in Chicago. And when I was 16, 1966, I just turned 16. I was 15, actually. And (laughs) I went to Chicago to do this show called the Ebony Fashion Fair. And um, Halston was in Chicago making hats. And I was unaware that he had come to see that show because some of his hats were in the show that Mrs. uh, Johnson, who was the owner of the uh, Fashion Fair and Ebony magazine, was one of his patriots. And she had bought his things and they were in the show. So in 1969 is when I met Halston. I was, what, 18? And um, I met Halston at a party. And I was there with Stephen Burroughs. And Stephen said, you know, you have to meet this guy because you have to work for him. And Halston was just sort of beginning in New York. And um, there was Andy Warhol group and there was Stephen and there was this coming up Halston. And um, I was working for Giorgio and, you know, sort of like there were 10 models that everybody used. There was me, Naomi, Marina Schiana and a few other models that all the designers sort of like shared. And so I was working with a lot of them, but there's Halston I hadn't met yet. And so there was this very sort of party for fashion. And um, Stephen and I were sitting on the sofa there and in walks Andy Warho with my friend Donna from school. And she was like showing off the stuff and coming into the room and everybody had their little entourage. And then in walks Halston by himself, solo, very, very handsome, long hair down to his shoulders, a white silk shirt open down the front with his white silk shirt, Navajo belt on, you know, the big buckle and long slacks uh, and, and very handsome, young, Scandinavian looking young man. And he came over and he sat down next to us because he knew Stephen 
and Stephen knew him. He sat next to me and he bumped my shoulder. He says, I know who you are. And I thought, oh my God, who's he? (laughs) He said, this is the guy you have to, this is the new designer you have to work with. I said, oh, hi. He says, oh, I'm Halston, but I know who you are. And I said, well, I'm Pat. He says, well, I've seen you before. I've seen you working. And I said, oh my gosh, well, where did you see me? I thought he's (laughs) at Halston's at Steven's show or something. Cause Steven didn't really have a show yet. He, they didn't have a show yet. We were just like in the new phases of having it. We were just like doing clothes to have a show. And he said, um, well, I'm Halston. And I said, I'm Pat. You know, I, I saw you in Chicago in 1966. I said, where did he say, I saw you in the fashion fair. And I said, Oh, and so he said, but I'd like for you to come up to 68th Street and you can put on some of my clothes. And then I looked at Stephen like, is that okay? Can I go to the, <laughs> you know, like, because you don't know who anybody is. And then when I got to 68th Street, it was so cozy and Angelo Dundee or somebody had designed this space for him. Uh, one of the famous designers, and it looked like a jungle when I got in there. There were so many orchids and exotic plants and and it was just like wrinkled candles burning in the scent. And, and then in the back room, it was like a tiny cutting room with a small table. Uh, Halston was in there and he was so handsome and tall and beautiful. I just fell in love, right? I said, oh, he's, I like to spend time with this beautiful person. <laughs> <laughs> and he dressed me and I was in his show. And I think I was in one of his very first shows, actually, because he was just doing showroom, like, you know, with uh, Marina Schiana and then his first show, I was in his first show and his first show had Houston, me, Naomi, Marina Schiana. And we were the girls that were, there were like five of us. After that, it was our home. It was like one of my homes, you know, he called me every day and I was there and he fit the clothes on me and the ladies came into the salon and he'd have lunch and then I'd come out and show the clothes. It was like we were partners in crime. <laughs> it wasn't a crime at all. We were partners in enhancing, I guess, you know. And he'd make things on me that he thought certain ladies of society would like, you know. And every girl had a style. He created a style on each girl that probably would enhance ladies of society. And I had my style. Naomi Sims had her style. Marina had her style. Angelica. So he create clothes for us individually. And I love in your book, you you have this memory of him rolling out the silk fabric, cutting it up, and then just draping and pinning it on your body. Yeah, at 68th Street, the space that was where he would entertain the ladies would suddenly become the creating room. So he had Joe Eula there sketching me. And, you know, he'd roll out a piece of fabric on the floor, cut it on the bias, get down on his hands and knees and cut with these scissors that were like this long, like a football. <laughs> and those scissors, and he had really functional, large hands, like his hands were like, his funny thing was all the time, he'd put his hands around my waist and they would completely encircle my waist. And he'd always say, look how small her waist is. But it, both his hands fit around my waist. And I remember him doing that all the time. Like at the fittings, he'd always say, put his hands around my waist and, and they fit like, you know, <laughs> belt or something. So this is how I want it. And he'd always like hold my waist like that. And it was personal because of the fact that, you know, I was in his personal life and 
you know, it was just, you know, I was all over his home and he was always sending the limo for me and inviting me for the weekends up to Montauk and we would make food together and, you know, laugh and then Andy Warhol would be there and we'd all be sitting on the floor like kids watching B-movies, like horror movies, like The Blob and stuff, because Andy liked that and Halston would tell us stories and we were just like kids on the floor and it was lovely going, being at the beach and every morning Halston would hoist up the American flag like at 6 a.m. He was an early riser and it was like a Boy Scout in a way, you know, so dedicated to taking care of his friends and sending flowers to everybody. Oh my God, I always had orchids in my home because every week he'd send me flowers. And oh, it was so romantic. You know, you just fall in love with your friends. Yeah. And um, I think it's so amazing too that I read that you were the first person who took him to Studio 54. Oh yeah, because that night we had... <laughs> Living in New York can be very lonely. You can have a very fantastic work life, but when you go home and you close the door, there's nobody there and you're single and you just, you don't want to go out looking for people. So you call who you know. And then one night Halston called, he said, do you want to come over and, you know, have some dinner or something? And his cook was there and he always liked to make a roast or something and cook something. And so I said, no, tonight we're going to go out and dance. He says, I don't dance. And I said, I dance tonight. So he, sent, he, he came over in the limo and I got in the car and we went around the corner because I lived on 59th Street and the cor- around the corner was 54. So we took the car and went over to 54. And the thing was that it was not open yet. And my friend Steve Rebell, he was rebelling because there were clubs that he wanted to go to and they wouldn't let him in. You know, it's like, oh, there was the red rope across like, oh, you're not, who are you? You're nobody. Don't don't come in here. And he said, I'll show you. I'm going to open a club. I <laughs> the said, club. He opened the club. I said to, I said to Steve, don't worry, because sometimes I get him into Haram, which was this like little snob, you know, the high, all the, the, the people like Ashford and Spence, all these like celebrities go. And he said, I'm going to open that club. So he opened the club and he said, oh, you know, Pat, come over tonight because I want you to see how it is. Because we were hanging out, you know, going... He was telling me his plans and stuff. And I want you to see how it is. It's finished now and I'm ready to open. I said, okay, I'll come over. And so me and Richard Bernstein, Richard Bernstein was his friend. And so Richard Bernstein was there. And me and Halston and Steve Rebell. And he turned on the music and all the thing, the lights and everything. And he put the music and I said, okay, Halston, we're going to dance. I have two left feet, Halston. So I have two left feet. (laughs) I said, you don't have two left feet. And so we started spinning around and dancing. He had so much fun that night. He said, I'm bringing all my friends here. And that's how it started with Studio 54. The rest, I, I'm not responsible for. <laughs> I'm responsible for the dance part. There's so many wonderful images of you from Studio 54, though. The Brooklyn Museum just hosted, I think in 2019, um, their first ever exhibition on Studio 54, which was only open for 33 months, which is crazy when you consider the legacy it's left. But you are basically the cover girl of that exhibition. There's this wonderful photo of you in this like pleated LeMay Halston gown. There's also this wonderful image that reminds me of the Grease film with you and Andre Leon Telly, and you have like this huge skirt, and it's kind of like up around you and you guys are just shimmering and dancing. I mean, it looks like you had so much fun. 
Absolutely fun. You know, that dress is actually a Zandra Rhodes dress. I came back from London with that dress and I I didn't I had just gotten off the plane and I didn't have time to go home and change or ask anybody for anything. So I just wore what I I had in my suitcase and Zandra gave me that dress. <laughs> and uh, uh, my friend Kevin Arpino helped make it. <laughs> Somehow I got that dress, you know, that fabulous dress. So I wore it out. And what happened? That dress has such a history. This um, a female impersonator, Divine, made a copy of that dress because I went before I went to the Studio 54. I went to this play that Divine, the, this wonderful uh, Andy Warhol, uh, Divine uh, was in a movie called Hairspray and all of this. Yes, up. yes. Copy that dress. I'm going to make that dress for my show. And he did. He made that dress for his show. That dress had so much of a run. I just wore it to a few places. It's where you wear your clothes that inspire people, you know. And that dress ended up being the poster that was like 10 stories high on the, <laughs> the, the front of the Brooklyn Museum. And I went over there astonished. But unfortunately, 2019 is when the uh, pandemic broke out and the night that the opening was, I had just sort of made my way back from Italy through Poland and through Bulgaria because it was the only way to come out of Italy to arrive on time to go to the opening of the Studio 54 exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. But I couldn't, it was too late and it was, everything was shut down. And I just, by the skin of my teeth, got back into America before they shut everything down. So that year, that exhibition, I don't know who got to see it, but my poster was like- on the <laughs> Everyone got to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just a big, big deal for me too, you know, like, and some of my clothes were in the exhibition and a painting that my mother had done of me in the Larry Legatsby outfit. I was so proud of it, you know, that my mom's painting was in there. And so, you know, things like history of clothes and you just, you're so fortunate to wear designer. I feel fortunate to have these clothes. You know, a lot of them were stolen. Uh, when you travel as a model, you have to leave a trunk here. I used to travel with trunks of clothes, so that's a little bit heavy. And so I'd have to leave clothes here and there. And, you know, all these wonderful pieces, you know, just disappeared. And through time, many things were stolen out of my houses and you just can't leave everyone in your house. Those clothes, you know, just so appealing. People want to have them. Well, yeah. And I remember in your memoir, too, where you talk about how your clothes were stolen and you saw your jacket, one of your like one of a kind jackets that only you and Liza had on somebody. On the drag queen in a show in Germany. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Clothes have a life of their own. Yes, they do. They certainly do. You've been so generous with your time, but I can't let you go without asking about the Battle of Versailles from 1973. It was recently just depicted in the Halston miniseries on Netflix. Way too short, in my opinion. No Pat Cleveland either. Um, but um, who played me, but she didn't have a major. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You were there. That is very true. You were there spinning. <laughs> yeah. Very proud. And she talked to me and she said, I'm going to play you in this movie. Is it all right? I said, you have my blessings because I really love you. And I love this girl and she's lovely and I'm happy for her. And, you know, just the fact that somebody they put they called my name in there. That was good enough. for yeah. me. <laughs> 
I know, but for our fashion history buffs too, we know you were there. We know you were so central to much of that storyline, as well as the other models that were a part of making that epic, epic battle, so-called battle happen. I'd love if you could just tell us about that experience and what that must have been like. You'd, of course, already been living in Paris at that time, but you know, you were you were all asked to come and do this so-called battle, I guess. It wasn't called that at the time, but to the Americans against the French, essentially. <laughs> but it was against anybody we'd like to get against them. Ooh la la. <laughs> they were divine, you know, because all the designers really, really love each other. But when it comes to time and energy, you know, everybody deserves a certain amount of respect. And, you know, America was like, looked kind of like down on because couture is couture for th- hundreds of years. You know, the French invented Very French. Yeah. And, you know, and who are these Americans coming in trying to claim this position? But in America, we had Halston, we had Bill Blast, we had Stephen, we had wonderful people that were really doing this couture in America. And so they call it a battle because, you know, like people love competition. What is a horse <laughs> race without a lot of different horses? And that's what it turned out to be. But other than that, you know, I had to come back to America from your... And they invited me in and they, they invited many people, but because it was such a low pay, uh, it was it was a charity to fix the roof on this uh, Versailles building that was falling apart. And, you know, it's history and people like to maintain beauty. They like to uh, upkeep. And so the Americans said, yeah, we're coming over and we because we want a party. Basically, it was about going to France and having a party with all the couture designers. But it turned out to be a battle because uh, there were so many things, you know, the how we work in America is nine to five on time, da, da, da. And in France, it was like 24-7. They have no concept of time because they're in la, they're la La Land. They're like, oh, we're going to have our wine and we're going to eat and we're going to take our time and just live in the moment. And America was like, no, we, we want to get this work over with that. So it was like, a you know, the contrast of work ethics, it was, it, it, that became the battle. And so, um, other than the work battle, the wonderful thing was being on stage with Nureyev and and Josephine Baker and, you know, Grace, the Queen of Monaco was there and all the royals. And, you know, the, the, the thing was wonderful because, you know, you learn that if a mistake happens, it turns into something wonderful. And because, you know, all the staging, the timing and everything was so confusing for the Americans because they're used to regimented and in Europe, it was like, oh, flowing. We have plenty of chiffon time. Uh, <laughs> it, that was the battle. And because of that, you know, Halston got upset that the girls didn't have enough uh, of this, that, and the other. Oscar was upset the girls didn't have food. Stephen was upset the girls didn't have enough time to go to the bathroom. You know, it was just long, drawn-out rehearsals that we were not used to because we're like a spontaneous American, like to do it like a spontaneously you know, do the show, get it over with. But there it was like, oh, good to rehearse for 20 hours and, <laughs> and bring in every stage set. And their portion was like two and a half hours, right? And the Americans were like 20 minutes. 20 minutes to do. <laughs> <laughs> so we were shortcutting it and we had the lights and we didn't have any stage uh, props. We had the lights and the American music. Uh, the music is what stole the show because what happens is being modern and, and up to date and actual what's happening in the time is so important to fashion because that's what makes fashion have a heartbeat. It's alive in the moment and there's no, we're not going back in history or we're not trying to, 
we're trying to stay to what is relevant, you know, and what's relevant is the music and the energy in the streets, you know. And so France was very classic and that was gorgeous. I must say it was beautiful. It was very beautiful. And that's what made the battle is that that kind of contrast is very extreme and uh, but much appreciated because when the music came on and the way, you know, the American girls moved in contrast to the old couture was like, oh, wow, we want to all go out and dance, you know. And so we move the way we move. And with you spinning down the runway. And the moving and the girls, you know, from 7th Avenue was a lot of 7th Avenue girls. And these girls are very like, they're like dancers. They're like workhorses. They get the show done and they have movement. It's not like, you know, they didn't know how to do a show. So, and then we had Liza Minnelli the real showgirl of showgirls. And we had dancers from, you know, backup dancers. And I was a backup dancer. And we were so proud because we had to rehearse with Kay Thompson, who was like Liza Minnelli's teacher. And, and she was Judy Garland's teacher. And she did Funny Face. And she was our teacher. And I learned so much from her. And, you know, we were just, we all wanted to be in showbiz. We all wanted to dance. And that's what we did. We danced. Mm -hmm. And we get into the evening, too. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us what it was like to meet Josephine Baker? Because that's one of the most memorable, I think, moments in your book is when you talk about getting to meet her. Because your family actually has a connection to her, which I found fascinating. Yeah, my great aunt was her Sunday school teacher and taught her piano and how to dance. And at the time, you know, there were no opportunities for anyone at that time back in the 20s and stuff. And so my auntie said, you know, you have to leave town because she was living in a house with with paper, a newspaper's wallpaper and shanty town. And my great aunt said, Josephine, you have to go away with these shuffle along people and get going, live your life, go And, you know, that's the story. And it's always been the story about this little girl who went to Paris in our family. And my mother always loved her. And she became, in my childhood, my mother was friends with Josephine Baker and uh, Marion Anderson and, you know, all of these stars that time. And so um, I always heard these stories from my mother and how she was. And when she did come to America at one point um, before I went to do Versailles, I got to be on stage with Josephine Baker because uh, she came to America to perform. And she said, does anybody want to come on stage and dance with me? And I did. I was dancing all around. (laughs) I know that I'd meet her. And that said in my head that, yes, I would love to dance with Josephine because then when I went to Europe, I tried to find everything I could about her, but she wasn't performing. And then suddenly she was going to do these performances at the Crazy Horse. So I was going to go up for an audition for that. But this was after 73, because then I had been on stage, backstage with Josephine in 1973 at the Battle of Versailles. And um, she had known about our story. So we became kind of close backstage. And then all the girls saw us talking and they came around and we were like a group and they were fascinated by her. And so then when I went up, I was going to go up and dance for her. Um, She had passed away that a few days before. So I didn't get to live out that whole dancing with her. And um, 
she was a wonderful inspiration. Yeah. And it's so it's so wonderful, too, because you've portrayed her many times throughout your career in different photo shoots on Patrick Kelly's runway. And your daughter also has, too. Your daughter, Anna, who's a model, um, has portrayed Josephine Baker. So it's wonderful to see that family connection. At the Follies Bajir. Josephine Baker at the real Follies Bajir. And the wonderful thing is she had Josephine Baker's changing room. So Anna... And I spent a lot of time with the ghost of Josephine at the Follies Bajet. <laughs> <laughs> I was very proud of her. Yeah. Doing that dance, the banana dance. Yeah. And that was that in John Paul Gaudier's show? John Paul Gaudier told the story of his life at the Follies Bajet and used my daughter as Josephine Baker. Oh, and wow. he wasn't going to put that number in, but he put it in because he knew the history of our family and he thought it was appropriate for her. Oh, how wonderful. And I was there for the rehearsals <laughs> and we were sitting in the audience and really appreciating Anna dancing together. And that was the highlight for me as a mummy. Oh, yeah, I bet. Well, Pat, this has been absolutely wonderful. Do you have any final reflections on the 1970s or or even just your career in modeling as we end our conversation today? I think a career is a magic carpet that you should always have faith in within yourself and look for those beautiful sparks of inspiration that will keep you on the path that makes you feel that what I do and what I dream and what I sense and the people around me, you know, the people that are around you, let them help you blossom as they have helped me in my life. And I continue to grow and I continue to seek and I'm a dreamer. And I think reality is just part of your dreams. So I think that's really important. That was really beautiful. Thank you so much, Pat. This was truly an honor and a pleasure. And with that, we end another wonderful conversation with Pat Cleveland. She is always so much fun, Cass. Oh, she is such a delight. And her husband, Paul, and I were joking that each episode we do with her gets later and later into the 20th century. So we've now covered 60s and 70s fashion with Pat. So perhaps she will come back on to talk about the 80s and 90s in the future. Absolutely. I would love that. (laughs) In closing, I just wanted to share a little tidbit of advice that Pat shared with me about starting my own vintage collection and shop because I recently acquired this small collection ranging from 1880s to the 1980s. And Pat spotted it on a rack behind me in my office when we were doing the interview. And it would feel out of context if I just left it in the interview. So I wanted to include it here in closing because in classic Pat fashion, her wisdom about the clothing we wear are also life lessons. Can I say something about your clothes? Get yourself a mannequin, like even if it's like a croaky or something, and a dress on there so that it has a life so that you don't feel that they're just sitting there. Because, you know, they're like little stories, you know. If you put a dress on a croaky or mannequin, you can build a whole story around it. I would suggest for you with your collection that you build a little story around each dress and photograph it as such. And tell them the story about each piece. And maybe in that way, they can come to life and go where they need to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There's still museums that are seeking pieces that are more difficult than ever to get. Because I don't know. I just think it's a blessing that for young people to see the dignity of clothing and, and the frailty of change. You know, like <laughs> this is something... I just made this one. Oh, I love it. Are you still designing then? Are you, st- are you still making stuff? 
I'm always painting or making, this is my studio. So I'm always making stuff because that was a gift that was given to me. And I just, I, I think acknowledging your gifts, like, you know, you should never throw them away. Like how you acknowledged fashion. Mm-hmm. You should never let people take something from you that sparks your wake up. You know what I mean? Right. Wake up. It says, I have to find these people, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to keep telling my stories and you keep telling yours. And on that note, dress listeners, may you consider the stories your clothes have to tell next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.